Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenvey. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Dr. Kennedy, the nurse walks up to you and says, there's a 78-year-old woman in room 12, and she's swinging at me. I'm worried she might hurt herself or hurt a staff member. I just need you to quickly put in some restraints. What do you do? Welcome to GEMCAST. My name's Christina Shenby, and I am joined today by Maura Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is the Division Chief of Geriatric Emergency Medicine at MassGen, affiliated with Harvard, and she's also the President-Elect of Geriatric Emergency Section at ASAP. Dr. Kennedy and I have known each other a long time, and she is such a fantastic advocate for improving care for older adults in the emergency care setting. Today, we're going to answer that question. How can we safely and effectively manage patients who have agitation, delirium, or who are at risk of hurting themselves or someone else? So Dr. Kennedy, let's start with that question. You're on a busy shift and the nurse says, hey, can you just quickly put in some restraint orders for this patient in room 12? What do you do? Thank you, Christina. Um, first, I think we need to acknowledge the fact that violence is a real issue in our emergency departments. Um, and we need to be appreciative that our nurses are often at the front line of violent behavior. Uh, and unfortunately, that sometimes is violent behavior from uh, older adults, uh, not just younger individuals. Uh, and so we need to ensure the safety of our staff, the safety of the patient, and the safety of other patients as well. So if someone is it's swinging at my staff members uh, and really poses a risk to their well-being, then that's sort of an escalation process where you need to go to the bedside uh, and you need to make sure that you de-escalate this in as quickly and safe manner as possible, which may involve medications. But sometimes the restraints are for less aggressive or violent behavior and more of a fidgeting behavior or someone who's pulling at lines or IVs. Um, and I think in those situations, there's a very different approach that we can take. And so I liken it to a situation where you're asked to give medications for someone with AFib with RVR. If you're already taking care of the patient, you've already done a full examination of them, you know their history, you may have an answer immediately about what medication you'd give for that individual uh, and what you would do to take care of them. But if this is a patient that's new to you um, or just flipped into AFib with RVR, you're gonna wanna take a pause. You're gonna wanna understand what is going on medically with the patient. You're gonna wanna think about their history, think about what might've precipitated that AFib and then um, order treatments as appropriate to treat the underlying condition uh, and potentially the rate. So a similar condition with an agitated older adult. You wanna think about why are they agitated and start at that diagnostic point of figuring out the causes of their agitation so that you treat the causes as opposed to the symptoms. I love that parallel, Maura, where you wouldn't just order metoprolol or an IV lobetalol for a patient in, in AFib or in other conditions without at least going to see, are they in AFib with RVR because they're septic or did they just pop into it and they're otherwise fine? Similarly, are they agitated or delirious and because they're septic or what's the underlying cause? 
One thing I would love to get your input in on and pick your brain about is dementia and its overlap with agitation. We know that patients who have dementia are much more likely to become delirious and are more likely to present with these symptoms of agitation. So what are some of the other risk factors for having that situation where they're in the ED and agitated? And then we can talk a little bit more about dementia specifically. Absolutely. So you mentioned two important things, which is dementia and delirium. So when I think about agitation in older adults, I think about dementia, I think about delirium, but I also think about other conditions that are common to um, non-older adults as well. So uh, intoxication, substance use, as well as primary psychiatric conditions. We have plenty of older adults with schizophrenia. Uh, individuals are living longer and longer. And so individuals with mental health issues are living longer and longer but specifically around dementia. So you have to determine whether a person has dementia, has dementia uh, with delirium superimposed on it, or just has delirium. And these can be really challenging to differentiate. One of the keys for me in distinguishing delirium from dementia is inattentiveness. Um, that is the primary distinguisher for me for most of dementia versus delirium. And then the other key element in that is getting collateral information from someone who knows the person who can tell you whether this is an acute change from their baseline and whether they've seen any fluctuations in cognition. They also can give you information about whether this person with dementia has had what we call behavioral or psychiatric symptoms of dementia in the past so that you can understand more about that patient's dementia and the symptoms of their dementia. You know, it's funny, Maura, I remember learning about dementia versus delirium in med school, and they presented it as, here's how to differentiate it, because it's really hard to differentiate, and you read the different symptoms, and I thought, this is not hard at all. What is the problem? I don't even get what the issue is. Clearly, one is acute onset, waxing, waning, with inattention, et cetera, but really in practice, it's not that it's intellectually difficult, but it takes time. And time is, we have plenty of intellect in the ED. We don't have a lot of time. And that's what the challenge is, is getting that collateral information, looking back at past notes to figure out, do they have a diagnosis of dementia? Now, I would love to hear from you a little bit more about, we know the population is aging, but how prevalent is dementia in our population currently? Dementia is very common among older adults and increases with increasing age. As our population has aged, we're seeing larger and larger numbers of people living with dementia. Approximately one in nine people over the age of 65 has Alzheimer's dementia. And when you look at individuals 85 years or older in the United States, one in three have dementia. Unfortunately though, a lot of people with dementia do not carry a diagnosis of dementia. About 50% of people with dementia actually have it documented in their medical record. So common increasing, we can expect over the next 30 years that it will, we will see about twofold increase in people living with dementia in the United States, uh, but unfortunately infrequently documented. Interesting. So we can't necessarily rely on the chart or that chart diagnosis code for their prior dementia. Now, how common is it among patients with dementia to have behavioral or psychiatric symptoms? So this is very common. First of all, the term uh, behavioral and psychiatric symptoms of dementia cover a wide range of symptoms. So the most common are anxiety and agitation, but it also includes things like delusions, hallucinations, which you will see in uh, Lewy body dementia, uh, wandering behavior, 
fidgeting behavior, and also aggression. Ultimately, it occurs about 90% of persons with living with dementia, and many people with dementia will have more than one of these manifestations. The later or more severe stage of dementia someone is in, the more likely they will have these manifestations. And there's a correlation between the behavioral and psychiatric symptoms of dementia and decline in functional abilities. So as individuals lose their ability to care for themselves, you also see increasing behavioral and psychiatric symptoms of dementia. How does dementia affect the brain functioning itself? So I think we often simplify dementia into believing that it's an issue of memory. And it's really important to realize that memory is just one element of cognition that's impacted by dementia. Certainly it's a common area that's impacted and it might make it easier for us to pick up if someone doesn't remember what the year is when we're doing uh, our orientation examination. However, dementia really impacts a number of different parts of the brain. It depends on the type of dementia someone has, the areas of the brain that have been affected, and also the severity in terms of how it can affect cognition. So certainly it can affect memory, but it also can affect language. And there's some dementias that primarily affect communication and language. Um, there are dementias associated with aphasia specifically. It can affect reasoning, judgment, it can affect behavioral control if you think about frontotemporal dementia. And as I mentioned previously, Lewy body dementia is a very specific form that can cause hallucinations in addition to movement disorders and sleep disturbances. So you mentioned Alzheimer's dementia being one in nine of patients over 65, which is incredibly prevalent looking at our population. What are some of the other more common types and what is it important that we know about them, if anything? Yeah, so Alzheimer's dementia is the most common type, but it's important to know that some people have mixed dementia. They'll have Alzheimer's dementia with vascular dementia. And as a result, the deficits that they have will reflect that combination. So the part of the brain that's affected by the dementia really plays heavily into a person's abilities and disabilities and ability to communicate with us as well. And so when we have someone with frontotemporal dementia, it would not be surprising if that person had a hard time controlling themselves behaviorally in the emergency department. And if we have someone with primary aphasia, that person's gonna have a very difficult time communicating with us. And we'll have to understand those deficits to be able to optimally care for them. How soon after diagnosis might a patient typically present with symptoms of agitation? So that really depends on the type of dementia that someone has. Looking at Alzheimer's dementia, usually it is years. So if someone gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia early on, they will gradually over a period of years go from mild dementia where they'll have short-term memory loss, they'll have repetitive questioning, they will have issues balancing their checkbook. Then they'll progress to moderate dementia where you'll start to see issues with executive function, impaired activities of daily living, and you start to see these behavioral symptoms emerge. And then many years after diagnosis, five, maybe even eight, you will see severe Alzheimer's dementia where the uh, behavioral and psychiatric symptoms of dementia are much more common. But in other types of dementias, it can progress more rapidly. So Lewy body dementia is known for its rapid onset. And that's really one of the hallmarks of Lewy body dementia. 
And then with vascular dementia, these cognitive impairments develop in the setting of vascular events like strokes. And so you can have a, an acute change in a cognition happen rather rapidly with a vascular manifestation. So how should we think about agitation in the ED? I mean, when a younger patient comes in, say with hyperactive agitated delirium from a substance use, then the main goal is to keep them safe, normalize their vitals, hydrate, usually use some benzodiazepines, but agitation in older patients is a little bit different. So how should we kind of frame it in our own minds? So thinking specifically about persons with dementia and setting aside delirium for the moment, assuming that we've done a careful conversation with the caregiver or the family member, we've done our tests of attention and we've decided that the person is not delirious, but they're agitated in the setting of dementia. One of the things that I have learned from my nurses, social workers, and honestly, caregivers of persons with dementia is to start to understand agitation in persons with dementia as a form of communication. The idea that agitation is really communication was not necessarily obvious to me when this was first introduced to me. So if you'd like, I can tell you a little bit more about how I break down this concept to make it make sense to me. Yes, I love that. I have not previously thought about agitation as communication. So tell us more. So we've already talked a little bit that dementia can impact language. It can impair a person's ability to communicate. We've talked about the fact that as someone's dementia progresses, they have functional decline. They're less likely to do their activities of daily living. So you put those two things together. Someone has difficulty doing things that they need, whether they need to go to the bathroom, whether they're hungry and they need to eat. And they're also having difficulty communicating their needs because of the impact of dementia on language and communication. You add one more layer to that, which is issues around behavioral control. Now you have someone who has needs that need to be met, that are not being met, that they're having difficulty communicating, and it's translating to these behavioral disturbances like agitation, aggression, or someone simply trying to get out of the bed and walk in order to get their needs met that we are classifying as agitation and inappropriate behavior. And instead what it is, is a way to try and get their needs met. Love that framework. And you know, it's similar in, in some ways, even physiologically to young kids. If a kid is crying or a little toddler is crying because they have some sort of unmet need or pain and they can't communicate it because in, you know, a patient with dementia, they've had this cognitive injuries or in the case of a toddler, they're pre-verbal and they can't communicate it. That makes it even more frustrating for them. But you would never, if you had an inconsolable crying toddler, you would never just be 50 to them, right? Whereas in older patients, too often the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, they're agitated, let me sedate them. And I remember patients have come in from nursing facilities sometimes where they're transferred because their dementia is flaring up. Well, it's not really their dementia flaring up there. It's their agitation. Agitation can be worse some days and better some days. And patients who come in because maybe they took a swing at a staff member at their nursing facility or took a swing at another resident at their nursing facility. I like this model of what are they trying to communicate? And maybe there is some unmet need, or maybe they're, they were just bored or feeling isolated or having some anxiety or fear. And that caused their behavior to change. And one thing that I think is really important to think about is how the emergency department may be worsening this. 
So if you think about this individual who already has difficulty doing their own activities of daily living, and then you put the environment of the hospital or the emergency department onto it, it really actually exacerbates the whole cycle. So I would think about someone who may normally be able to feed themselves at home and they're in your observation unit and someone puts a tray that's got a lid to it in front of them and leaves it and walks out. This person who typically sits at the dining room table with a family member and cuts up their own food and feeds themselves now sees a tray with a gray lid that they don't recognize and have no idea that that is their meal and therefore not able to feed themselves because it's so unfamiliar. Or in the emergency department, maybe someone who typically can toilet themselves at home because they know where the bathrooms are, they know how to use the faucet. They're in your emergency department in a stretcher bay, have no idea where the bathroom is, and also have no idea how to communicate with someone because we are so busy seeing other people. And so now you have someone who is normally able to do an activity of daily living at home, but now not capable because of our environment, have difficulty communicating with us. And it really just exacerbates that agitation cycle. And the challenge in the emergency department with persons with dementia, as opposed to children, you know that a two-year-old is not gonna be able to prepare their own meal but you don't know by looking at an 80 year old whether they have the cognitive and physical abilities to do those activities of daily living or to communicate with us. Oh, that was so well said. I love that, Dr. Kennedy. So let's return now and think about this very practically for our patient. You have a patient in bed 12, 78 year old woman who is agitated and she just took a swing at staff members. What do you do? So the first thing you do is you get up and you go to the bedside. If possible, you have everyone take a step back to try and de-escalate the situation. And then you try and figure out what is going on? What is this person trying to communicate? Is there something about the environment that's frightening? To be honest, if there's seven people standing around someone, they have dementia, we're all wearing goggles and masks and gowns in a very frightening environment of the emergency department, I think that in and of itself might escalate the agitation. So if it is safe to, to take a step back for a moment and see if that individual can de-escalate and stop swinging. If there continues to be a risk of harm to staff or to others, then we do have to think about medications and Dr. Shenvi, you led the development of the ADEPT tool with ASAP. It's a great little tool that you can pull up to look at medications with geriatric specific dosing to try and address agitation. But if we're able to get things into a safe space, then I would start by thinking, okay, this patient may have an unmet need, maybe they're scared, and try and sort of do some diagnostics, create a diagnostic framework to try and understand what they're communicating and how to meet it. So things that you might think about are, is there something in the environment that's uncomfortable? Are, is it too hot? Are they too cold? Is there a need that's not being met, such as a need for toileting or food? Are they bored or are they overstimulated? Can you turn down the lights? Can you address sensory overload? Are they scared? And is there a way that you can de-escalate that? There's another mantra beyond the B-52s that I like, um, which is the Tada mantra. And this was introduced to me as a mechanism for delirium, but I think it works for dementia as well. And it stands for tolerate, anticipate, 
and don't agitate. Tolerate means tolerate behaviors that are not dangerous and provide redirection. Anticipate is thinking about patients' needs and meeting those needs. And then don't agitate refers to limiting things that might agitate a patient. So if you don't need a urinary catheter that might cause agitation, don't put a urinary catheter in. If someone needs IV fluids, but the IV is bothering them, you can cover up the IV with a sleeve. You can put the fluids behind their back so they can't even see the IV fluids and avoid agitation that way. And then one other thing that is very different from what we teach on delirium is don't reorient, just redirect. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. I love that. So first, if they come to you with this patient who's swinging, don't just put in orders for restraints. Really go to the bedside, see what's going on, see what are they trying to communicate? Are there unmet needs? Just like with delirium, and again, here we're going to compare and contrast, look for an underlying cause. Treat that if you can. And the tada mnemonic, tolerate the behavior if they're not truly dangerous, provide redirection rather than reorientation, anticipate their needs. So offer toileting regularly instead of waiting for the patient to get more agitated or try to communicate it. And then don't agitate, limiting catheters and restraints. I would love to hear more about the redirection versus reorientation. What is the evidence or the thinking behind that? So imagine that someone has very advanced dementia and in their reality, they are a teenager in high school and you walk up to them. And despite the fact they've been living in a fixed reality that they are a teenager in high school, you walk up to them and try to tell them that in fact, it is 2022, they are in the emergency department and you are the doctor and you are challenging this fixed disorientation that they have. That actually is likely to cause more agitation rather than calm things. With delirium prevention, reorientation is part of the mantra. So someone who's being hospitalized might be at risk for delirium. You wanna remind them where they are, what day it is, what time of day it is. In this case, you actually want to either tolerate their disorientation, redirect, or some people will actually join in the disorientation. So someone says that they're a high school student and they're worried about getting to their class, you ask them what classes they like the most and you engage with them in that reality instead of challenging the reality. That is such a great take-home tip. So tolerate their own reality, join in, not in a, you know, we're joining this fixed uh, delusion, but instead of trying to reorient, redirect them somewhere else. And I've certainly seen this happen where patients who think that the year is 1960 and that their husband or loved one is still alive. And then when they're reoriented to know it's 2022 now, and they realize that it's 2022 and they start asking after their loved one and they're told their loved one is dead, that causes so much distress. And so just allowing that fixed reality for them to be present and understanding that that's their baseline worldview that they're living in. And we don't need to try to force them to say, no, it's 2022. So what things can we do in the ED before we try any medications? What things can help these patients be more calm or stop them from getting more agitated? So there are a lot of things that emergency departments and geriatric emergency departments have put in place 
to try and make a more calm environment or for distraction or reorientation. These are often referred to as therapeutic activity kits. Some of them are specific to persons with dementia. And depending on the stage of dementia, you might choose a different activity. So all of us, if we sat in an emergency apartment for seven hours, would probably get bored at some point. And that is true for individuals with dementia. Individuals with more mild dementia might be able to do word searches or some coloring activities. And so you could offer those, those activities as a way of cognitive stimulation. At more severe stages of dementia, it might be towel folding or shuffling cards. That might be a way to cognitively engage someone and also redirect fidgeting behavior. There's lots of other ways to redirect fidgeting behavior, including fidget toys. And then you can also think about sensory stimulation. And most of us have heard about music as a form of sensory stimulation and as a calming mechanism, but some people also will use light uh, stimulation. So those might be glow eggs. Some people will have projecting orbs that will project stars onto the ceiling and try and calm people through a sensory stimulation mode. That's great. So many relatively low budget things we can do. I mean, fidget toys, you can, <laughs> you can, and I have purchased a, a bulk quantity of those from Amazon. They're pretty easy to come by. They have a lot of different options these days. Let's say we've tried those things and now the patient is still agitated. You and some colleagues had a great paper in JSEP Open called Agitation uh, in the Older Adult in the ED or the Agitated Older Adult in the ED. And you had a systematic approach to how can we help these patients? I'd love for you to walk us through how you would approach a patient who, let's say you've already tried the sensory stimuli, et cetera. So I think the first thing that I would put out there is ask, do they have a painful condition? Because sometimes someone is having pain and we are not recognizing that the agitation is a way of expressing pain. And so if someone has a hip fracture or a painful condition, I would start by treating the painful condition. That might include acetaminophen if it, they have a wrist fracture that you splinted, but you might want to consider intravenous medications such as hydromorphone for pain management. And that article goes into why you might choose hydromorphone over morphine. And I don't want to get into the weeds about that. Um, but that would be my first starting point is ask yourself, is there something painful going on? And if there is, have I adequately treated their pain? And if they've got a hip fracture, maybe that's where you're doing your fascia iliaca compartment block. Okay, so if they have pain, you treat the painful condition. What else can we think about? So the other thing that I think about is why are we giving the medications? Are they severely agitated, swinging at nurses, putting my staff and others at risk? Or are we giving them medications because they're too agitated to lie still in the CT scanner? And the real purpose for the medication is to get the CT scan to see if they have an intracranial hemorrhage. So that's my next branch point. Why are you getting the, giving the medications? And if it's for a procedure or emergent imaging, and it's critical that they are still for that, we recommend trying low-dose sedatives in that case. I will tell you there's no randomized controlled study of this. There isn't good literature on geriatric agitation in the emergency department setting. But in my personal experience, the number of times that I or my colleagues have given antipsychotics 
in order to sedate someone to get a CT scan, we end up giving repeated doses and then eventually changing medications. And now we've stacked doses and stacked medications and have someone who is somnolent for 12 hours because of our medications. So that's my first branch point after addressing pain. If you need emergent imaging or a procedure, and that is the reason for the medication, that's where I use sedatives at a low dose, go slow, you can always add more. I feel that if you start with antipsychotics, you may be at risk of escalating antipsychotics, changing agents, and cause more harm. Absolutely. So we could start out with something low, like a fentanyl, 25 to 50 micrograms IV or a lorazepam 0.5 to one milligrams IV, always starting lower and just titrating to what you need for the patient to be able to lay still comfortably to get that head scan or that neck scan. If they've come in after trauma or whatever it may be. Now let's say, okay, it doesn't seem like they're in pain. We don't need any acute imaging. What's your next thought process? So there's two things that I think about. One is they, are they already on a medication? So if they have dementia, have been having behavioral symptoms of dementia for a period of time, they may already be on an oral medication for agitation. And if they're not severely agitated, if I can give them an oral medication, then I would continue their home medication. If that's not the case, my next branch point is thinking about, do they have Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia? because in individuals with Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia, you need to be cautious with antipsychotics. And if they do have one of those two conditions for oral medications, I generally go to quetiapine, but if they need parenteral medications, that's where I also will use lorazepam, even though benzodiazepines are considered potentially inappropriate in older adults. It's such a rock and a hard place because you have, if you look at the beers list or other recommendations, you know, don't use these things, but sometimes we have to for patient safety. So if they have Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia, we want to avoid most of the antipsychotics except pioquetiapine is okay. And then if we need a parenteral agent, lorazepam 0.5 to one milligrams IM or IV. What about in patients who maybe have Alzheimer's dementia or no Parkinson's disease or Lewy body? So you're going to preferentially go to second generation antipsychotics. Uh, I typically use olanzapine, but a lot of institutions have different antipsychotics that they prefer. I would say use a medication that you are familiar with and familiar with the dosing, because that is the most important thing. If you're familiar with the medication and the dosing, then you're less likely to give a very large dose and over sedate the person. Absolutely. That is the, the highest risk problem is giving too much. So cannot state this enough. The B52 is not for your 78 year old woman who has dementia and is agitated. Instead, maybe it's a five milligram sublingual olanzapine or a 12.5 to 25 milligram PO quetiapine. Or you can also do olanzapine 2.5 to 5 milligrams IM or IV try those things first before bringing out these giant doses, because as Dr. Kennedy alluded to, it can cause prolonged sedation. And in some patients, you can have counterintuitive agitation from benzodiazepines. So you want to avoid over sedating them and then avoid polypharmacy as much as possible also. 
patients who have already are on medications that could interact with the things that you're giving them or cause more QT prolongation or just more general polypharmacy can cause prolonged sedation. I've certainly seen this where patients are almost completely somnolent or minimally responsive for 12, 15, 20 hours after getting large doses of medications because they were agitated. So start low, you can titrate up, start PO if possible. And in patients with Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia, use quetiapine, but avoid some of the other antipsychotic medications. And because we work in the emergency department, we often don't see the effect when we give multiple medications or high doses of medications, but those individuals end up missing meals. They don't mobilize for a period of time. They may become delirious because of that, or they may just have functional decline because they don't ambulate for 24 hours. And ultimately that actually lengthens their hospital stay. And it means they're in the hospital longer and it adds to our boarding crisis. So there's a lot of reasons for the patient and for us to start low and go slow. And again, just another plug for the ADAPT tool. It is a really easy tool to have on your smartphone. I have it on my smartphone, even though I should have this all memorized. And I pull it up to make sure I'm doing the correct dosing because on the fly, it's very easy to order what you're more familiar with, like a B52, but having a really quick tool to reference or an order set at your institution in your medical record that makes sure that you start with the right dose and you don't over medicate these patients is so critical. And for those who are interested, the ADEPT tool stands for Assess, Diagnose, Evaluate, Prevent, and Treat. And it's available at asep.org forward slash ADEPT. And it walks through very easy, practical ways to assess, diagnose, evaluate, prevent, and treat delirium. You know, Maura, I think one of the problems with the B52 is it has such a catchy name, you know, because it's the Benadryl 50, uh, Haldol, uh, five out of N2. I think we just need to come up. This is a marketing issue. That's what this is. We need to come up with a catchier phrase. So maybe the O5 for olanzapine five milligrams or something. I know that's not very catchy either, but somebody out there needs to come up with a good quick messaging about what we can do for older patients other than the B52. I now, see a I would, TikTok challenge. Uh, TikTok challenge. <laughs> come up with something better than the B52 for us. I would love if we can to go a little bit into the weeds that you circumvented earlier, which is the hydromorphone morphine question, because many physicians, many EDs have kind of a, a bad association with hydromorphone. And that's often because it has high potential for abuse. And some EDs have gone hydromorphone free, or some physicians try to steer away from it because of its abuse potential, particularly in younger patients. But you're saying that in older patients with dementia, for pain, we may actually want to go to hydromorphone first instead of morphine if needed. Talk me through that. So this is something that I have heard from a number of pharmacists. One of those things that you learn from your colleagues, but not necessarily your emergency medicine physician colleagues. We are usually more comfortable with morphine. It's a medication that we're used to giving. One of the reasons that I know people don't like to use hydromorphone is like you said, the concern that people are abusing it. The only medication that works for me is the one that begins with a D. But also in older adults, it's very easy to over-medicate someone. Morphine, seven milligrams seems like a big dose, 
but hydromorphone one milligram doesn't seem like a big dose. And so I think when initially hydromorphone became uh, more available for parental administration, we were giving larger doses uh, inadvertently. And so I think that's one of the other reasons that a lot of people shy away from hydromorphone for older adults. The challenge with morphine specifically is twofold. One is higher accumulation in patients with renal dysfunction. And then there's this concern that they have, that morphine has neuroexcitatory metabolites that can actually cause CNS depression. So after the morphine has been metabolized, some of the metabolites can cross the blood brain barrier and can have CNS effects without having analgesic effects. And there's a, a belief that those metabolites may not be as prominent in hydromorphone. So they're less likely to have that CNS depressant effect. Additionally, it's preferred in renal dysfunction as is fentanyl. Great, I love that. Now I love having the background of the physiology behind it and the pharmacology, that makes so much sense. So to summarize, the main things that I am taking away from this is, first of all, dementia is incredibly prevalent and comes in different types, but can very frequently manifest with behavioral disturbances. So when a patient comes into the ED with behavioral disturbances, we should first go and assess what are they trying to communicate? What are their underlying needs that we need to meet? The tada mnemonic of tolerate what we can, anticipate their needs, and don't agitate, meaning prevent agitation with many of the tools that we've talked about for delirium in the past. What's different with dementia is redirect instead of reorienting. And instead of that B52, first go and see, are they in pain? Give the dose of pain medication that's needed. Maybe it's just acetaminophen. Maybe it's hydromorphone instead of morphine. Maybe it's just some fentanyl to get them through that CAT scan. And then instead of the B52, if they still need something else, consider the O5 or the Q25. So the O5 would be olanzapine 5 and Q25 would be quetiapine 25 milligrams. That's the best I can do until the TikTok challenge and somebody comes up with something better. You can also refer to the ADEPT tool, which is made for delirium, but the medications will also apply for patients with dementia. And be aware that patients, particularly with Lewy body dementia or frontotemporal dementia, may have more of these hallucinations. It's much more rapid onset, so it can have more overlap with delirium. And in those cases, you want to avoid most of the antipsychotics except quetiapine. Any final thoughts or words for our listeners, Dr. Kennedy? So just bringing back something that you mentioned at the outset is time. All of these things seem very time intensive, which is something that is scarce in our lives, in our work. However, putting in this time up front saves time in the long run, whether it's because the patient is not sedated for a prolonged period of time, whether it's because the patient is not in restraints and doesn't require as much nursing care, this can be time-saving in the long run, but you have to put the investment in upfront. Thank you so much for being on GEMcast. That was fantastic. I learned a lot. And I hope that those of you listening now feel more comfortable and have an approach and a framework to think about the next time you have a patient who comes in with dementia and agitation. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GemPodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.